FM. We're going to keep things short and sweet in the upfront here. Just myself and Clara on the pod today. Trey is across the pond. Um, but I know, big shoes to fill. But we do have a very special guest on, Dave Chang. You may know him from restaurants like Momofuku, Major Domo. Um, he is an author, he's a podcaster, he is a media mainstay, a culinary mainstay, and he was generous enough to give us some of his time and let us pick his brain about future of food, future of media, where Gen Z fits into all of that. Um, yeah, I was stoked to get him on the pod. It was a good conversation. Yeah, it was really interesting. And I think it's also kind of a good, I don't know, kind of culmination of a lot of the work we've been doing with him and with major Domo Media for the past month or so. Um, we just hosted our Future of Food Ask Gen Z dinner with them um, in LA. It went really well, lots of really cool guests. And we also hosted a panel with Justin of Anna Jack Tai, which just won a James Beard Award. Um, so he was able to provide some interesting perspective too, if you tune in on day one social. Um, but yeah, I think the conversation with Dave, I I got to ask my my most burning question about menus with pictures. Um, but additional to that, I think just thinking about how food is one of those like last kind of analog spaces where people kind of have to gather IRL. And of course, there are sort of other dimensions to that. And we get into a lot of how food is currently living on social, but like the actual sort of the food of it all um, still needs the to meat be of it all. the actual. Yeah. I know I was like, is there a good pun? But I was not quick enough. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those things that you still really need to be like present for quite literally. And like cooking is something you have to be present for. Um, so I think he brought a lot of interesting perspective to that as well. Cool. All right, let's get into it. Dave Chang, welcome to the pod. Honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, to kick things off, I usually like to uh, start all my conversations with a gripe, which is a great way to earn friends. But I was listening to uh, the most recent pod, Dave Chang show that you did. It was a conversation on uh, still tap or sparkling water. And I just wanted to say that I share this grievance and I feel like it is not talked about enough about how there is often still water is often substituted for tap or vice versa. But it's a sneaky swap. And I just want to say thank you for bringing that to our attention. No problem. I'm sure I've been guilty of it as well, right? <laughs> I know. You're doing God's work. I also just separately separately on the uh, gas station draft. There honestly sounds nothing better than paying $7 a gallon, drinking a XL Coke, and you know, engaging in some tobacco activities at some point driving down the highway. So again, that was a great listen. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm glad you enjoy that as well. Well, once again, welcome to Day One FM. Gas station snacks aside, we are stoked to have you here. Yeah. And, you know, not the most, you know, logical segue maybe to zoom from there into the restaurant world, but did want to start there just because I'm sure that that's where a lot of our listeners know you from across Major Domo, Momofuku, um, where me and Eli actually recently ate. Um, but we wanted to get your take kind of on the current landscape. We've been seeing just some crazy headlines on our side, you know, whether it's about like TikTok's grip over restaurant menus or, you know, the Dining on Vibes article from Grub Street um, about how more and more restaurants are launching kind of on vibes alone without really like a major name chef backing them. Um, the rise of caviar is sort of like a hot menu staple. Um, 
Eric Adams, <laughs> to list one last one, recently um, created sort of like more permanent state for outdoor dining. Um, but with all of this kind of like swirling around and you sort of having been, you know, in this industry for a really long time, you know, d- does it seem like we're in as transformational a period as some of these headlines seem to be making it out to be sort of like coming out of COVID, coming into this like very like TikTok dominated, it seems sometimes social landscape. Um, you know, what of these trends seem like important to you, if any, and you know, if none of them, you know, like where where is your head at these days in terms of like what's new and next with the restaurant world? Which I know is a huge question, but <laughs> kick things off light, you know, kick them yeah, off light. It, it, it is a huge question. Um, well, I would say that um, a lot of the analysis of late in media, honestly, is several months too late, mm-hmm. almost a couple years too late. Um, this has been discussed quite a bit amongst the culinary culinary community for some time. Um, and there's a lot of reasons as to why things have changed. We'll explain that change in a second. But like most things in culture, you alluded to TikTok. I, I wouldn't just say it's TikTok. I would say like anything that is novel and new in culture today, it's expedited exponentially because of technology and because of social media, because of mobile devices. Um, so for a long time, cooking and and the trends in cooking were always probably like 10 years, five to 10 years behind most other facets and pockets in culture. Um, and if you look at what's happened in literature and music um, and fashion, I felt was really a, a close approximation to some of the trends in food. If you look at basically all across any creative endeavor that is, you know, goods are being sold to some degree or ideas or songs are being sold, everything's in upheaval. And it's the first time ever that everyone's in the state of chaos, almost. (laughs) (laughs) I wake up and it's chaos, yes. It's hard now to sort of look at other places and get some, and we're gleaning some insight as to what is happening. And a lot of that is because of, uh, I I mean, I like to say the word commodification. some people like to use democratization. I don't know if that personally is the right word. I think that something becomes a commodity when it's something you need on the base level, right? Just for sus- like just existence, right? And you're getting taxed for it, right? Whether it's your electricity, you know, basic cable, it seemed like that. And food is something you need, but a lot of the things that were on the ends of the spectrum, right? High-end dining, et cetera, um, that had I, I hate sounding like a I hate using some of these terms, but there was always information asymmetry there. Um, you could do things and move quickly enough before anyone else caught on. There was a lag time, right? Uh, I could think about in the 1990s when you had the, really the second generation of American chefs that were going to Europe to learn how to cook, but they weren't going to the older guard as to some of those restaurants like a restaurant Talivant, which is this classic old style French restaurant. Uh, that's where a lot of people would go. But the next generation, they were going to places like Pierre Gagnier and Alain Passard and Michel Bra. The cooks that went to Europe at these restaurants that were at the cutting edge became sort of big time chefs here because they had a huge information advantage, technique wise, knowledge wise, over anyone else, right? Very few people had that. I myself had that in, uh, advantage when I worked in Asia, in Japan. 
I happened to do something that was not very cool, but no one else knew anything about it. And I mean that. It was like but that is cool, you know. And 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 it is cool, but like uh, that over time, that gap of information started to dwindle. That information gap. Right. And while that's great, what was once a special thing now everyone can have, right? So it's great and bad simultaneously. Uh, if you if you can see it that way. Totally. On one hand, it's better than ever to eat delicious things, but on the other hand it's harder to see the peaks and valleys now because all almost everything looks like this flat plateau. Right. right? And, and, uh, I think over time, you know, you would have, I remember cooks would go to Europe and they would send postcards. Right. And they'd be like, Hey, I think a cookbook's going to come out in like two years. And that would be in French. And then another two years, that cookbook would be translated in English. So literally you have a four year gap on a published book. Now, Many of those recipes you can get instantaneously, right? You would work at restaurants specifically to learn techniques and styles of how to, um, you know, basically do anything. There, there, there was just an impossible way. It was just absolutely impossible to acquire as much knowledge as many people have today. And I think you could look at that in any fabric of culture. It was the same way, right? Um, and now... Uh, 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 you can go to YouTube and pretty much get an idea. You may not master it, but you will know. So there's culinary literacy and knowledge is higher than it's ever been. And it's only going to get higher and higher. Right. Um, and I can see there's many examples of that. Right. People didn't even know what kimchi was 30 years ago. Now they know that there's several types. All you have to look is the supermarket aisle. I use that as a comp. I'm 46, but I remember growing up and you had olive oil. That was it. Now you have a whole section dedicated to first you got pressing, olive second oil in press. a squeeze bottle, <laughs> yeah. olive oil in a teardrop bottle. Yeah. And, 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 you know, 25 years ago, people didn't even know a pasta shape other than ravioli and spaghetti. You know, it, 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 now you can name all kinds of pasta shapes, not everybody, but it's common knowledge to a, to a degree. So that knowledge is now number one, commonplace. Number two, um, I think in some degree it was a bubble for all the restaurants pre-pandemic, right? And over the pandemic, I think I, I read a great book by Safi, um, oh my God, I'm gonna kill Safi Bacall. He wrote Loon Shots uh, and he's going to kill me because I just had a brain fart. <laughs> we'll edit in post, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wrote a book and, he, and it, well, a lot of it was understanding how someone that could have a great advantage could lose it, right? It's really hard to make decisions when you become you know, top dog and you have the lead. And he used the example of Pan Am Airlines versus American. And Pan Am at the time in the 60s and 70s uh, was like the coolest airline. You know, they had good looking flight attendants. They had good food. They had the sleekest, sexiest airplanes. Um, and one's in business and one isn't. And American wasn't cool. And they hired a CEO that worked at Hallmark. But he, he made two things that really changed the game. One was creating frequent flyer miles. The other one was democratizing the reservation book. So you didn't have to go to American Airlines to book flights. He gave that technology and, and accessibility to every travel agent in America or the world over, right? So one was cool and focused on being cool and being at the vanguard. And the other was just trying to be useful. 
And I feel like after the pandemic, you can see that independent restaurants, uh, many of the my peers, we were caught in this sort of cycle of trying to be most relevant and most cool, right? Well, after what, you know, the past three plus years, you know, all of that has changed, right? Um, and I think what is most useful now is what is most important. And you're always a product of what's happening in the times. And the pandemic clearly fast-forwarded delivery. Um, it also changed our habits of where we work, right? So that neighborhood restaurant in, in Brooklyn Heights is now one of the hottest restaurants, but it never had lunch business before, right? So now you have three or four turns when maybe they would do turn two because now people aren't going to Manhattan as much. So a lot of things that are uh, beyond anyone's control changed. Um, and because of that, I knew this was going to happen. People were going to want something that was comforting, comfort food. And that's the, that's the era we are in right now. Everything is comfort. And you uh, had mentioned restaurants that are not necessarily chef-driven. I think, again, everything is cyclical and this was going to happen. Maybe it probably would have happened, in my opinion, maybe 12 to 10, 15 years. Um, but all the things that were going to happen just happened in three years. It, everything just, the, the clock just sped up. Um, so that's the thing. People want experience, right? So sushi restaurants, barbecue restaurants, Neapolitan pizza, things that don't deliver are, are, are very in demand. Um, and also anything that is sort of best in class. And I think this is, the, this is the one thing I can see throughout culture is anything that is best in class um, usually best in class as an experience is super expensive. That is going to become even more expensive, right? Um, and I, I think that's the challenge that everyone has. And if you're in the middle, and not all experiences need to be expensive, right? You can um, have really affordable pop-ups and there's new ways of doing it. So anything that's new and experiential, I would put it in that category. But everything else is either are you making it cheap or cheap and fast? And if you're in the middle, it's a, it's a hard way to sort of navigate that future. So um, all of this was sort of beyond anyone's control. And I don't think anybody could have predicted it. And yes, TikTok's being used as a wonderful way of uh, giving opinions and knowledge. I don't think people thought when it came out as a music app for Musical.ly that they'd be used as almost like a Wikipedia uh, of sorts. But... Um, you know, that's nothing new. And before that, you know, I remember the first time Flickr was used to capture food. I remember looking at the first food bloggers setting up a tripod, right? So the patterns have remained the same. How that pattern is like disseminated, like I would say like the, the, the hardware has remained the same, I should say. The software has changed, right? And, and that's why I'm not too concerned about the future to a degree, but the one thing I, I have some concern is how does anybody that is in the middle stay relevant? Because the things that made you successful will probably, you know, not even be what people want moving forward. So staying ahead of the pack, being relevant, being in the at the vanguard, I think is extremely difficult. And I don't know if I answered your question because it was such a massive question, but I know. Oh, I mean completely answered my question, but yeah, sorry, Eli. No, you got it. 
Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think, no, everything you covered was really interesting. I think the thing that, I don't know, I was just, I was curious about is this idea of like informational dissemination, like, like the easy accessibility of, you know, so many techniques and so many ingredients. And I'm just curious and maybe there isn't, but like, is there any sort of like direct impact on the types of food, whether it's restaurant side or home cooking side that like you see coming out and not necessarily in terms of like quality necessarily, but do you think it's had an impact on like people blending different cuisines more or maybe like pushing more of the limits of like certain ingredients? Or do you think that it's had sort of more of like a numbing or like dumbing down effect that it's just too much information for someone who's like maybe say like me and is maybe like boiled a you know a box of pasta to then immediately go in and like start trying out these like you know these techniques that are maybe like three or four rounds of cooking ahead of where I'm at you know being reasonable with myself. I mean anything that can help people cook I think is a huge advantage it's certainly an advantage for me even if I don't know how to do something like oh it gives me an idea and I don't have to watch the whole thing but I do think there's a lot of hot yeah. garbage out there. Um, <laughs> most of it actually is hot garbage. Um, but but I don't know if this is going to answer your question uh, in a maybe indirect way. The one thing that food has over other parts of culture, which is why I'm extremely bullish on it, is that it's the only thing you can't download in this world, right? Yes, travel as well. There's other things, sporting events, concerts. Yeah. Right? Even though, you know, the experience, it's the one thing where you have to experience physically, right? And yeah, food is one of the, you know, probably less than six or seven things in our lives that you actually have to physically be present and engage with, whether you're sitting in your boxes at home or in a three mission star restaurant. So that's the one advantage that's also historically been what's prevented it from, you know, being broadcast simultaneously, right? Uh, I remember talking to the manager of U2 at the time, and I don't know if you guys remember when U2 forced everyone to listen to that shit <laughs> on the iPod. Yeah. Uh, on it their... auto-downloaded <laughs> and everybody, yes, We're not that I young, do. but yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but, but think about how amazing that was, right? Like, there would be no way you'd be able to do that. And yes, you have theoretical ghost kitchens and stuff like that, but you still have logistical hurdles to do. Cooking is still going to be a bottleneck to get out there at the same time, which is why shelf-stable foods, et cetera, chips, those may be the only things because you don't have to make them fresh per se, but I digress. Um, I think it's FOMO. It's literally the, the king of fear of missing out. And oftentimes food is, is intertwined with travel, right? Um, it's being able to take a photograph, not just of food, of where you're at. And a restaurant also is this perfect environment for culture right now because many times celebrities might go there. And you have that endorsement. I can eat what they eat. Um, it's just that's sort of where we're at right now. And it's about inaccessibility, not accessibility, right? So from there, you get this trickle-down effect and you're going to see imitations of the things that work, but people don't realize um, it's not easy to, to to replicate. And from food, I, I always think about um, uh, wine, for example, something that is very finite in supply and in places that are actually make something delicious. 20, I mean, uh, like I would say 20 years ago, 15 years ago, a lot of biodynamic wines started to become in vogue in France, um, Italy, closer to... Uh, Slovenia as well, where it's skin contact, et cetera. Very in vogue, no sulfites. I like them, I don't love them. 
Um, and I thought it was interesting because in my opinion, it started to gain foothold, not just because of the no sulfite organic biodynamic movement. People that wanted to learn about wine and were quite frankly younger could never taste a Raveno that might be on a menu for 1800 bucks, right? Basically anything from Bordeaux and Burgundy and some of the super Tuscans and some of the cultish things you might have in, in Sonoma or Napa that are several thousands of dollars, right? My, my prefer Chablis from Burgundy, right? Um, that's expensive as fuck. How are you going to taste that? And it, it's just the same thing. It's like when you look at a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or some stupid, you know, car that, you know, only a person, we don't, you know, I would, I don't even know if I know anyone that has one of those cars, but it'd be funny if somebody, <laughs> um, you just look at it and be like, oh, that's just not what I'm going to do, you know? Um, so a lot of the wines that, or the complete opposite of that became super popular. And you saw the, the, the region of Jura where, you, uh, you know, Vinjan, this sauce, and a lot of those wines that are minerally and they're funky became super cool to the point now where everyone says, well, that is better. That's the best wine in the world. Listen, like. <laughs> Take us to school real quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the furthest thing from an expert on any of this stuff, but I've tasted a lot of great things. I can like it, but you can't say that it's better. Yeah right? In my opinion. But I sound like an old fart saying like, that's not rocking, this, this music, it's rock and roll, or that's <laughs> hip. I, I sound generationally out of touch, mm-hmm. right? I understand that. But I, but I also can see that, well, the next thing you know is that region and those wines become cost prohibitive as well to the next generation. And that next younger generation is going to find that thing that they have accessibility to. Uh, I think when we were talking, you talked about tin fish. I always felt that tin fish was going to have its moment, all right, because of all those reasons. It is one of the best ways to um, taste something delicious that's shelf-stable. Spain, many places in Europe, Asia have great tin fish, and it's affordable, right? It's not a surprise to me that it's having its moment, right? So... Again, when it becomes popular enough, maybe it becomes more expensive. And really good tin fish is fucking expensive. Mm. (laughs) Apparently, it's luxury, so they say. Exactly. It's not cheap, and I don't know if people understand that. You can can spend $40, $50, $60 on a tin of tuna belly or baby clams. They're delicious. But maybe that becomes the norm. Maybe it doesn't. I can't predict the future, but then... You know, it's almost like Darwinism, this trend, this desire to have accessibility, which becomes inaccessible now because of price, the next generation will find their thing. Maybe it's spam. Who the fuck knows? <laughs> you know, but but that's what happens. And it doesn't mean that it's worse. Right. Right. It just is what they resonate with. And I think that's what's happening in food across the board is people now it's been so fractionalized, which is why food criticism is almost for the most part, meaningless. It's the same reason why, when's the last time someone had, when's the last great rock and roll band? Not that it even matters, right? Uh, amen, brother. Um, yeah. Probably <laughs> say, you probably say Radiohead from the 90s and they're in their late 50s now, right? Um, when's the last movie star that captured across, captured the minds and hearts of all generations? We still have Tom Cruise. 
listen, they're worried about AI generating or AI de-aging old movie stars rather than uh, finding the new ones. You're banging on the same drum that I feel like. It's interesting because I feel like the same, and you mentioned this earlier, talking about food through the same lens as what's happening with music, art, movies, et cetera, um, which I find fascinating. And it's also like food as analog, food as something that's still physical. I feel like you can tie that back to, you know, growing demand for records and CDs and music as well. And, you know, the rise of zines and fashion zines and magazines as a whole, even VHS, writing letters, et cetera. Like all of that is increasing in demand because I think, you know, our world is getting more digitized and your feed could change when the algorithm shifts in a second. You could lose that playlist. You could lose that recipe, et cetera. So it's just fascinating that it all ties back. It's kind of the same same thing there. I want to, because we mentioned Tin Fish, um, and we also mentioned frozen food, and I've always been raked over the coals for enjoying frozen food, for better or for worse. And I know you had strong opinions on this as frozen food is kind of the next frontier, and I'm curious as to kind of what are the factors there other than long shelf life, I suppose, frozen shelf life. But um, yeah, I'm curious where you see that going. I know it's not the sexiest of topics, but it was interesting to me as, you know, someone who frozen food feels like a utility you know what i mean it's like you're not really spending the time to make it to master craft to cook it i may be very wrong but like for me it's like just got home it's eight i'm tired i don't want to make anything i'm gonna make you know pot stickers or something call it a night why is that maybe gonna be something that more people are doing or something that becomes a bit more elevated i mean number one is frozen foods you know is one of the best ways to eat something with the highest quality of flavor, right? A flash freezing process is, you know, technology that's been around for a while, but the degradation of quality is relatively minor, right? Uh, compared to other ways of preserving food. Um, and when you start thinking about it, it's like, okay, I wouldn't say every household has a freezer, right? It's just arbitrage to some degree. Right. I would say, I don't know. Throw it out there. Ninety-five percent of Americans have a freezer, <laughs> right? <laughs> Sounds great to me. I mean, yes. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's a, but like, like, okay, outside of a well, like, well, that's an amazing thing. So you have food that can be done deliciously and reheated, either in an oven or in a microwave oven. Two, it's also a form of storage that almost every single person in North America has. Well, you know, trends come and go. Frozen pizza is always going to be a thing. Um, you're going to have prepared meals. I would also say it's like, okay, 30 years ago, if you wanted to do uh, udon noodles with a, you know, broth or a stir fry with, you know, you can add on protein, right? So maybe you're just selling udon noodles and they can buy their protein or it comes with it doesn't matter. That's an easy thing to sell today because that just replaced the pattern again has changed, but the underlying fundamentals have remained the same. That really just changed like chow mein noodles in a, in a, in a can <laughs> to some degree. Right. Um, or, or, or it becomes, or it might've changed ramen noodles or instant ramen noodles. I, again, like everything's changed. Asian food is much more sophisticated right it's better and people know more about it so it's maybe also a way of getting to taste flavors that they may not 
get on the regular freshly. I don't know, but right. we could spend all day talking about the powers of reasons why a, a freezer is important. But it's just sort of sitting there, and we've gone a long way from the 1950s frozen Hungry Man meal, watching TV and eating, <laughs> you know, Salisbury steak and exactly. potatoes, which I love and think it's delicious. But it's more than a frozen burrito, right? So right. I think I love taking bets on things. You're like, why the fuck didn't anyone else? Why, why is there no movement here? It's one of the reasons why I, you know, I, I went really hard into microwaves. Ninety-one percent of all U.S. households have a microwave. Collecting dust at the most. People are using it to reheat water or to make microwave popcorn. That's about it. It's like, okay, well, all you need to do is teach people that it's what's holding it back. What's holding a microwave back? Horrible marketing that was developed by the army. Any marketing the <laughs> army makes is pretty bad unless you're trying to get 18 year olds to go to war, right? They're really good uh, at that, it seems. It's they actually do what they're Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay. And there's a lot of health and science mumbo jumbo nonsense. All of that's not true. So it's like, okay, it's a not that high of a time commitment for me to start with education. And before you make microwaves, which I hope to do one day, let's try to actually find out why a microwave is bad. Most people microwave in plastic, right? Most people don't know that you can microwave. The only things that are safe are certain shapes of metal, glass, and silicone. Microwaving plastic is really bad for you. That's what's bad for you. So it's like, okay, why don't we create a microwave cookware dish set? And that's step one. So it's those are the bets I like to play. And Frozen is something like that as well, where it's just totally uncool. I love the uncool shit. And between Frozen meals and microwaves, you can't find two things that uh, an established cook or an ambitious young cook would shit on more than those two things. So to me, I view that as opportunity. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I've recently been on a bit of a, a bender on cooking eggs in my microwave because um, I have really? a cat. Yeah. Well, my cat won't stop getting on the stove, which is a separate topic that I will not bore you guys with. But um, I've been making my eggs in the microwave, but I have been cooking them in a plastic dish. So I'll consider myself warned. But <laughs> Once you start malfunctioning. I know. Uh, it's like when I start, like my eye starts going, like you guys will know what's up. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the microwave... You know, the microwave and frozen food phenomena are both like really interesting spaces to watch. And Eli, you've definitely found yourself a powerful, a powerful ally here today. Yes, I know. I I will say that I feel like the best marketing the U.S. Army has done recently is that missing fighter jet. I don't know if you saw that. No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sorry, it's a total non sequitur. I promise it'll take less than 20 seconds. But this fighter pilot ejected from a jet. And then the military is like, hey, we're missing this fighter jet. Can anyone find it? Everyone was okay, but there was just a missing jet in the air for about a couple hours. Uh, but hey, baby, that's brilliant. marketing. I know. That's, <laughs> that's the industry we live in. Um, but I, I just wanted to say one thing, uh, too, about where we're at. And it's very similar to not being able to have a, 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 a like titan of their field, right? Whether it's a celebrity, musician, author, whatever. It's hard right now because everything's fractionalized. Everyone has their own micro communities. Right. It's almost impossible to transcend unless you're like Taylor Swift, right? I'm not saying it's not impossible. It's there. And look what happens when you can do that. Right. And you unless do... you can afford to go to see Taylor Swift too, right? Exactly. That's a whole other thing. Right. So it, it, it's just we're living in a very strange days, right? Great movie. But yeah, I agree. I agree. It is weird. I mean, everyone's in their own kind of like algorithmically fed media ecosystem. So 
it is just kind of constant ambient noise when nothing really struggle, nothing really breaks through. So we get, you know, the 10th Saw movie, the 15th Marvel Cinematic Universe. No great rock bands, although Brian Jonestown Massacre are playing tomorrow at Brooklyn Steel. So definitely will we'll go to see them. Um, but yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. It's um, it is weird Twilight Zone era that we live in, I feel like. And things, as you guys know, trends dot, no one has any idea how long something is going to last. I know. I mean, we were just talking about, we do our own type of trend report and just talking about how kind of like futile it feels now. I mean, now this is just a little therapy session, but it's like, we don't know anymore. And I don't think anyone knows anymore because trends have become trending and it's so hard to kind of like parse through what is actually meaningful so when you say like you like taking bets on the things that aren't cool like or don't seem cool i actually think that that might be one of the more radical things you could do because no one is really talking about it and if it seems boring now it's probably not going to be which you know how long it takes to get there who knows now but i mean and that's I'd, and, that, and that's yeah. what the internet and social media has done it's literally right. an asset that mines through everything uncool <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> And that's a fantastic metaphor. I mean, honestly. Great album name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I want to get your take on like a couple random things, more non sequiturs, if you don't mind. Claire and I were talking about menus with pictures on them and how that's like can often be seen, I suppose, sometimes as like, eh, wouldn't want to eat here. What are your takes on menus with pictures on them? Good, bad, indifferent? Doesn't matter. Sometimes I think, oftentimes I find that. Uh, it saves you time, right? And <laughs> exactly yeah. what she we, said, yeah. we, we, we were just talking about this on the podcast, right, um, to, that we recorded today, that um, if you're an immigrant to this country, it oftentimes mm-hmm. is the best way to right. communicate mm-hmm. that this is my specialty because maybe they don't have a front of house. They don't have the mean to communicate to an audience or the money to be in an environment to communicate to an audience that might dine there. So having signature specials, and those specials having a photo, even if they are done poorly, I oftentimes like love that, you know? Yeah. Um, and when you go back many times, then you start to sort of, to, you know, try out other things on that menu. So, but but when you're at a place that's pretty well established, like I, like the Cheesecake Factory and restaurants like that, people love, <laughs> but it doesn't need to have pictures on the menu. Let alone 40 it's like, pages I, of a menu. I know what fettuccine Alfredo looks like. <laughs> Thank you, Cheesecake exactly. Factory. <laughs> What about like, because we talk about food as physical, food as analog. I feel like there's a lot of discourse around QR code menus, which I think was one of the like most annoying things to come out of the COVID economy. Also because it forces you to be on your phone when going out to eat ideally is like a social experience that you are enjoying with friends, significant other, family. Again, could be a very dumb question, but I'm very curious your take. Like QR code menu, yes, no. Eh. I think... It's probably going to stick with restaurants that are charging a certain amount of money mm-hmm. and experience. And you're probably going to see, you know, restaurants where, again, everything in restaurants is, you know, rubbing two pennies together. To, uh, you know, it's just tight margins. Um, I think where you can cut costs. Right. That's going to. And so it's going to be an either or proposition for menus for sure. Right. Any pressing questions from you? No, I mean, just last thing on menus, I guess, while we're here. The other thing that, you know, we've 
I don't know, just been chatting about maybe internally is the whole looking at the menu before you go to the restaurant phenomenon. And I don't even know. This is a completely anecdotal observation, but it seems like, you know, sometimes people are divided into kind of two camps of like looking at the menu ahead of time ruins the experience, looking at all the photos on the Instagram, looking up the Yelp, like kind of to the same point, like creating your own menu with pictures for a restaurant versus, you know, like I don't want to go in advance. I want to, you know, fully experience this restaurant and what it has to offer. Do you have thoughts one way or the other looking up? the restaurant before you go checking out all of the food all of the weird photos like other people have posted i don't necessarily look at the photos and i don't if i'm going to i don't look at the menu often um but i there when i do it it's just more to get a a sense and a vibe and of what's being sold there i never looking at the recommendations i'm never looking at the this is the must-have list. You know, at the same time, it's if a, if it's like say um, I don't know this restaurant that serves gnocchi, and it's like everyone talks about it. Like clearly, you're going to try it, right? right? <laughs> but 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 like you're not going to go out of your way to not order those things. But I do think what I like to do is get a sense of what's actually good versus it's just of the moment, and I would rather order the things that are just really good. Then have something where you're like, why the fuck did I order this? This is so stupid. <laughs> why did I get this rainbow bagel with rainbow cream cheese? It's like, why? oh my gosh, don't get Eli started on no. the rainbow bagel so, because <laughs> bagels have been doing too much in New York. I don't know when the last time you were in the city was, but it has just become way too complicated and complex. Yeah, because you're trying to grab attention, right? And I know. It's, I don't blame anyone for doing that, but um, you know, it's it's. It's again a metaphor for how I like to look at restaurants. I love looking at the best of lists, anything. But I also think, from a culinary point of view, it also hurts the chefs. And I think we're going to see that conversation happening. I think the the food media will finally become self aware enough where they're like, "Oh fuck, we're the problem too." Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because uh, if you have like a hot list, like, what about the restaurants that don't make the list? So you right. can't then you then can't proclaim equality and all this other stuff because it's fucking not fair. And the other hand, I like those lists because I try to avoid those restaurants. Mm. Or what I like to do in LA, you know, I, I might see, oh, this is the hot restaurant in Cape Town. I will go to the restaurant next door to that restaurant because I want that self-discovery. There's nothing better than going to a place and this can happen all the time where no one's talking about it. It's a diamond in the rough. And for whatever reasons, people aren't talking about it. I mean, I, 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 I'm always happy that um, it's now close spoon by H. Um, the owner is now doing mostly private dining, but it was in um, L.A. And it was really near the, the Ringer Studios when we were recording at uh, Sunset Gower. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody had told me this restaurant was really good. They made Korean food. And I was like, hmm, all right, I'm going to check it out. And whenever somebody tells me that and I and it's hard to find any information on it, I always bookmark that. Right. Because maybe it's bad, maybe it's good, but it still meant something to somebody that I care about or I trust. And I love restaurants that are delicious when they shouldn't be. Mm. And this restaurant didn't have a bathroom, was a dessert shop but served to me some of the most original Korean cooking I've ever tasted. It was so good. And I was thinking to myself, like, how many restaurants are like this? Probably a thousand. 
I think, in LA, some huge number. Um, and it just doesn't hit the radar of the the food, you know, gatekeepers. Right. And I was like, well, that's stupid, right? Like, and sure enough, other I tell people, and I made sure that the owner was ready for what was coming potentially, and that everyone's writing about it. You know, and the pandemic happened, unfortunately, for her. Um, and I'm like, there's there's great food being made in places all the time. You just got to search for it. And there's something in extremely rewarding to sort of like, you know, blazing your own path and trail. That seems like quite the hyperbole, but, you know, to do it on your own, that's cool, right? Um, yeah. And we need more people to do that. And in some regard, I think it's great to see that uh, on social media and TikTok. You have a bunch of people that are, vigi- that are just basically food vigilantes. Mm. They're like, fuck it. I'm just going to go talk about this. And that is the positive. We are seeing people just be like, you know what? I'm just going to do it myself. And that in aggregate, that is a that is an extraordinary positive. So it is happening. You just have to search out for it. You even have to search out for those people that are writing their own reviews, right? Um, nothing is easy to find anymore. And basically, anything that is cherry-picked for you, I think is total bullshit. Totally. I mean, again, talking about reigniting a little bit of uh, self-discovery and also the importance of friction, like not having everything be fed to you. This is why some Spotify playlists are absolute garbose because you're not taking the time to like find the song that is maybe track 18 in an album and it doesn't have the star next to it or whatever, you know, it's not chosen for you, but it's great. And I think again, like that is so important, just blazing your own trail, like you said, going off the beaten path a little bit and running up against a little bit of friction, I feel like there is where you find kind of the diamond in the rough. That sounds so unbelievably corny. But I just saying I agree with you. Things that are spoon-fed to you are oftentimes, I feel like, don't taste as good as they seem, you know? It's a little bit of bitter medicine. But yeah. No, it, it's inherited knowledge is the same problem as inherited wealth and inherited mm. success, right? When it's just given to you, it's hard to appreciate how the fuck you got there. Right. Right. And if you've had friends that may be independently wealthy and they're, you know, it's not as awesome as it seems because like their life sort of sucks. Right. Is that a platform sticker for uh, 2024? <laughs> <laughs> Could yeah. be. Which is why, I, you know, there's a lot of great food out there and right. nobody has any. Um, I mean, you just have to read what's being done. Like cri- food criticism is not nearly as powerful as it used to be. It still is. And the main reason is that actually the right word is democratization right you know that has changed so much and um there's so many different ways you get information so i I just encourage everybody to go out there and just eat places that you would never think about eating don't microwave the plastic clara don't don't microwave plastic yeah even for cosmo very important lesson here today yeah Yeah, we need to get you a set of any days oh yeah i can't wait i'm very excited very excited by the way um, I guess just like as one last sort of closing question, I'm and Eli, I'm poaching your question here. Um, but just to the point about, you know, curation and kind of like maybe like the lack of teeth that food criticism has these days. I think something, you know, we've been chatting with a couple of folks for the podcast across music and, you know, CPG foods and some other th- spaces, but just sort of like the importance of a curator and whether or not it feels relevant to like their space or their context um, 
And in talking, I think right now, I think the sort of exploratory fact of food, of like going out there on your own, trying things, developing sort of like what your taste, what your interest in food might be is kind of like an individual pursuit is super important. And I agree. I just, I'm also curious, do you think there is any place for kind of like that sort of food curator, if not a food critic, if, you know, maybe just like, I don't know, a food, someone to, you know, follow or emulate or, you know, provide some context around here's what to look for here's what to do like is that a presence that you think is still important is it lacking now or there's still sort of those figures that sort of help to shape those um like for starting out say foodie right um i i'm thinking you're going to start to see more verification of people that have good taste (laughs) right to some some way yeah you know, and it's not going to be a blue check mark. It'll be something. Some company is going to create something or Amazon or I don't know. Somebody's going to say, like, this person actually knows what the fuck they're talking about to this on, on these subjects. Um, and like, for example, uh, you have, you know, yesterday was uh, Monday Night Football and Troy Aikman. He's a super fucking popular, very successful commentator now with Joe Buck. Why is he? Nobody questions why he's announcing football (laughs) (laughs) he played you know he's the super bowl champion it's like hey like he should be telling us what to do tony romo he's fucking awesome at it there's a certain combination and 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 they're articulate and etc everyone else if you just put it someone else in there they could be great but you have to earn that trust and i don't know how but trust is an important thing um in any relationship. In any yeah. relationship. And, and, I, and, I, and I also think that how people are going to um, get things curated, it's going to be like choosing a video game avatar, you know? Interesting. You know, you, you, it's going to be a group of people. It's like, listen, I, I already, when we did like the first Ghost Kitchen back when we did Maple, um, year, like a long time ago now, and I remember thinking when we, we built the app and I was like, okay, this per, these like, 25% of the people ordered salad every fucking day, right? Not a surprise to me that they're probably going to like a healthy drink and this and this. So it's like much like a Spotify algorithm that you can like put them in a bucket. Right. So they're probably, they're not going to listen to me talking about a double cheeseburger and a cheesesteak. Mm-hmm. They're going to think about it, but they don't, I'm not their cup of tea. So you're going to find somebody that does resonate to that community And I think that's what you're going to happen. I mean, that is what is going to happen to some degree is, um, you know, and and it's quite possible that like I might want to now learn about this new, like this new person and this healthier way of eating because I have to now change my life and my diet. So it's like you're going to be able to choose that. And and, in some degree, I think you can see that in the podcast world, right? Um, That's almost already happening in podcasts. Right. Uh, people are choosing who they're listening to as an avatar for the life that they want to some degree or information that they want clarified. Um, you know, I, I, you think about the rise of the, the, I always joke the tech bro health and wellness guys, like the Peter Atias, the Hoobermans, they're great, but like they got a hardcore following, right? You know, and, and Tim Ferriss, like it's a specific group of people and I think that's already happening in podcasts, and you're going to see that to some degree, you know, happen elsewhere. And the reason somebody like a Hooverman gets a podcast is 
He probably is the doctor or advises other celebrities. He's a Stanford professor. Like, you know, you, you, you have to have some credentials to be able to like emanate expertise. I know it's amazing. They let schmucks like us have a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) One day, one day we'll get there. It might not be a blue check. Maybe it'll be a cosine. Who knows? The journey starts now. Dave, thank you so much for joining us on the pod today. Really appreciate it. Anytime, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yo, thanks for tuning in. Stay up to date with all things Day One FM by subscribing to our page on Spotify, following us on Instagram at D1A, and staying up to date with the latest trends and insights on D1A.com forward slash perspective.